1: Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Saanich, British Columbia. Saanich is the largest municipality on Vancouver Island in westernmost Canada. It offers the charm of country life mingled with the convenience of urban residential neighborhoods and close proximity to the provincial capital of Victoria. The Songhees and the Saanich First Nations, which are indigenous tribes to the area, use the area for hunting, fishing, and gathering plants. In the 1850s, the Saanich Peninsula was purchased from the coast Saanich people for 386 wool blankets. The name Saanich is derived from the native word meaning elevated or upraised. Saanich now boasts a well-established community and offers its residents a wide array of urban and outdoor amenities. Its main shopping center has undergone a massive redevelopment over the last decade and is now home to over 80 shops, banks, and restaurants. But in 1987, the disappearance of two of its promising youth shattered the tranquility of this peaceful community, a trauma that festers to this day.
2: Jay Cook and his girlfriend, Tanya Van Kylenborg, had been dating six months. The two were introduced through mutual high school friends. Jay was 20 and was described as being quiet and friendly. 18-year-old Tanya enjoyed playing tennis and basketball and loved animals. On Wednesday, November 18, 1987, Jay agreed to run an errand for his father who owned a heating business and needed some furnace parts. Jay was gonna pick up the parts at a company called Gensco, which was located in Seattle, Washington. Jay asked Tanya if she wanted to come along for a quick little adventure, and she agreed. It was the first trip they were to take together. The couple let their families know they would return the next day. They took Jay's family van, a large copper brown Ford Club wagon, that they were going to camp in that night. They removed the back seat so they could load up the furnace parts the next day. They then drove the van to the car ferry at Victoria and took the one and a half hour ferry ride directly south to Port Angeles, Washington. From there, they headed south on Highway 101 towards Seattle. Because Mainland, Washington has so many inlets and waterways in that area, the couple had to take a second ferry from Bremerton, Washington, across Puget Sound to get to Seattle. Kath, when I read they had a Ford Club wagon, do you know what that reminded
1: me of? When you had to go pick up furnace parts for your dad? No. <laughs>
2: It reminded me of the Ford Club Wagon 12-seater van that your sister and I had for carpool.
0: Oh, yes, that's true. Yeah. So (laughs) when
2: our kids were young, you know, I had five, she had three. There was another neighbor down the street who had three. They all went to the same school. And we were all driving carpool with our own children and decided this is ridiculous. And so one of the dads is like, hey, let's pitch in and buy a van. We each pitched in like $500. We're talking a janky janky van that
1: cannot be underscored enough
2: <laughs> yeah yeah it had a bad paint job it, it just needed lots of work all the time but essentially we were only driving it to and from school but it was awesome because we were able to divvy up responsibilities and
1: it fit everyone exactly easily
2: totally and i remember there was a fourth family who moved in and was like hey we want to be part of your carpool." and so we're like sure no problem then they started trying to get fancy. Mm-mm, yeah. No fancy. Exactly. They were like, hey, we should get the van detailed. I was like, no, isn't that what children are for? Right. <laughs> you know, and then should we get a paint job on the van? Absolutely no. not. I'm not wasting a penny on this vehicle. You know, and we we would humiliate our children when yes. they, on eighth grade graduation day, you know, sometimes there were more than one, you know, eighth grader graduating that was in carpool. And so we would decorate the van with their future high school colors and put uh, big posters of them on the side. Usually with like braces or something. Or their first day of school in their little uniform. Oh, that's true. We did the first day of school pictures. And when we pulled in to drop them off for carpool, we would just be honking and honking and honking. And it was just hilarious to us. Yeah. And as any 13-year-old
1: knows, it was not funny in any way, shape, or form. not funny to them.
2: And I remember my third son, Kevin, knew what was coming and we're driving to school that day. We stop at a red light and he literally slides the van door open and hops out. And And it was like an FBI hostage situation. Like four of us like run out, grab him, drag him, toss him back in the van, continue on to school. And when I look back, it's a miracle that the police weren't called to oh, like, you know, hey, there was some kid who was just abducted into this really ugly van. Go find him. you know. Although you probably then turned into
1: the school street. So right. people were like, oh, kid didn't want to go to school. You know,
2: I just look back and it was... It was so funny and so convenient and also so horrifying.
0: Right.
1: Well, you know what it reminds me of huh? is, do you remember? So I think everybody knows that we live in Southern California and Kathy and I and a bunch of our friends decided that we were going to go on a TMZ (gasps) tour. Oh, my God. I totally (laughs) forgot about this. (laughs) So the, the Carpool Express, as they called it, was very distinctive for a number of reasons. But one of the ways it was distinctive is it had two bullet holes. Yeah. On the back, driver's side, like, rear of the, of like the van. Like, rear, rear panel. Yeah, rear, rear panel. panel. <laughs> That's the perfect word. So we're on the TMZ open-air trolley tour. Right. Through the streets of Los Angeles. We saw... Who
2: did we see? I, we um, Somebody at the Ivy. Oh, what's her name? She does, like, a, a show with...
1: Oh, Kathy Lee Gifford. There you go. So we saw Kathy Lee Gifford. That was the star power that we got that day. And we were screaming at her You're last <laughs> 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 Anyways, the funny part was, is my sister was on the tour with us, of course. And she sees the Carpool Express off to the side. And, of course, we're like, it's not. They made more than one of them. Right. And she's like, look Look at the bullet holes. We're like, oh, my God. So it did live another life. Not quite sure what it was doing there, but. Exactly.
2: um... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Totally forgot about that.
1: Okay, so. Back to the story. Exactly. Exactly. According to a March 2017 episode of Unsolved Mysteries with Dennis Farino, Season 5, Episode 22, the families began to worry when the couple did not return home the next afternoon. According to Tanya's father... Tanya. Oh.
2: <laughs> Tanya's father. It's spelled T-A-N-Y-A. Correct. And we thought it was Tanya. But it's not. It's Tanya. It's Tanya. So we are
1: saying it correctly. Yes.
2: Which reminds us
1: of the... Suzanne Degnan, episode 26.
2: Yeah. The Chicago episode. My mother and father told me, Kathy, you mispronounced the killer's name. It's Herons. The point is, it's not Herons, it's Hirons. Anyway, so it's Tanya. Thank you. No,
1: I I appreciate the correction. Sure (laughs) you do. Sure you do. (laughs) (laughs) She knows me too well. (laughs) According to Tanya's father, she always called when she would be later than expected. When Tanya did not call to explain why she was late, her mother became concerned. That evening, Mr. Van Kylenborg reported his daughter missing to the Saanich police. According to a July 2020 episode of Bloodline Detectives, season one, episode six, entitled Road Trip to Hell, six days after Jay and Tanya left Vancouver Island, the Skagit County Sheriff's Office in Washington received a 911 call from a man who reported seeing a woman's body in a ditch off Parsons Creek Road when he was walking his dog and collecting aluminum cans. The location was about 75 miles north of Seattle. The 911 call was made Tuesday, November 24, 1987, two days before Thanksgiving. Detectives arrived at the scene to find the body of a young woman who appeared to have been sexually assaulted and murdered. She was lying on her back and naked from the waist down, except for socks, and her bra had been pushed up above her breasts. There was blood congealed under her head and pooled on the ground underneath her. It appeared that she was killed from a gunshot to the back of her head. Deputy Dave Willard and Detective Gerald Bowers called the coroner and helped search the area surrounding the body. Located near the body were zip ties that had been fastened together to make larger zip ties. They were collected as evidence, along with a shell casing found near the body. Now... A few days prior to the discovery of this young woman's body, the Skagit County Sheriff's Office had received a bolo alert, be on the lookout, a few days prior from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police.
2: By the way, Kath, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, don't they seem so regal?
1: They really <laughs> do, but they also dress really well, too. So, yeah, and
2: I, I mean, I know they don't really have horses anymore, but that's sort of the origin, and uh,
1: it just sounds so fancy. It really does. It does. The Mounties sent an alert to local law enforcement to be on the lookout for two missing persons, a young couple who had left in a van from Saanich, British Columbia, and never returned. Detectives contacted the Mounties for further information and were provided with additional information on the couple.
2: Although Tanya's father knew that a BOLO alert had been sent to Seattle requesting help finding his daughter and her boyfriend and the van, he could not sit still. According to the previously referenced episode of Bloodline Detectives, Tanya's brother John was interviewed and said someone his father knew had a small aircraft. This person took his father up over Seattle looking for the van, which unfortunately they could not find. The family also immediately started a ground search, distributing posters with photos and bulletins at different locations. Tanya's father took two trips to Seattle looking for anyone who knew the whereabouts of the couple or the van. Tanya's brother John accompanied his father on the second trip, putting up more posters. All of Tanya and Jay's friends hung out at her parents' house and were very active in making phone calls and spreading the word about their disappearance. Nobody knew their whereabouts, which led the family to wonder if they had decided to go somewhere by choice. But it did not feel right and they kept looking. While in Seattle distributing missing persons posters, Mr. Van Kylenborg phoned home to check in.
1: And I'm assuming this is with a payphone and not a cell phone. That is correct. All right. <laughs> <laughs> they used to be all over the place. Absolutely. No
2: more. He was told by his wife that she had received a call from the Skagit County Sheriff's Department informing her that a body of a young woman had been found without any identification. Deputies were aware that the Van Kylenborgs had filed a missing persons report and asked if a relative could come view the body. The family's sinking feeling was tragically confirmed when Mr. Van Kylenborg and his son John identified the dead girl as Tanya.
1: Skagit County did not have a coroner's office where they do autopsies, so they brought the body to a funeral home and the autopsy was done there the next day, Wednesday, November 25, 1987. Skagit County Medical Examiner Frank Kendall conducted the autopsy. A gunshot entrance wound was located in the back of Tanya's head. There was no exit wound. The entrance wound was described as markedly jagged, which would be indicative of a contact gunshot wound. From the physical evidence, it appeared that Tanya was shot with the muzzle of the firearm either touching the back of her head or in extremely close proximity in a matter that could be described as execution style. A fragmented bullet was recovered from the skull and later determined to be consistent with Winchester silvertip hollow point bullets and a .380 autocaliber. The Winchester round is the type of shell casing that had been located near Tanya's body. During the autopsy, the pathologist found physical evidence that Tanya had been sexually assaulted. Swabs that had been taken from Tanya were later microscopically examined and found to contain sperm. The pathologist concluded that Tanya's date of death was November 19, 1987, the day after Jay and Tanya had left Saanich. At
2: this point, the police had Tanya's body but no answers as to who did this or why it happened. It was now time for them to find Jay in the van. Jay's family was distraught and had no idea where he was and the detectives told his parents to prepare themselves for the possibility that he may become a suspect. On the same day of Tanya's autopsy, Wednesday the 25th, exactly one week after the couple left Saanich, more clues were found in a small town 16 miles north of where Tanya's body was found. According to the previously referenced Bloodline Detectives episode, a woman working at Essie's Tavern in Bellingham, Washington, was taking a break outside behind the tavern she and another employee noticed several items underneath the back porch of the tavern and brought them to the attention of police. Court records show that these items included Tanya's wallet, her ID, keys to the Ford Club wagon, surgical gloves, zip ties, a partial box of 380 silver tip bullets, and the lens cap to a Minolta camera. A Bellingham police sergeant on scene went down the alley next to Essie's Tavern to a public parking lot a short distance away. There he spotted the very distinctive copper-brown van. The van was found one block from a Greyhound bus station, which was just next door to Essie's Tavern, giving the killer an easy departure from Bellingham. So it sounds like he parked this van or what the police think happened is that Jay or someone parked this van in this public space, went down the alley toward the bus station, chucked these items underneath this, it's basically a wooden porch in the back of a tavern, and hopped on a Greyhound. Which makes perfect sense. Yeah. The van was towed, photographed, and examined inside and out for any potential evidence. According to court records, the van contained zip ties that had been fastened together to make larger ties similar to those located near Tanya's body. The van also contained a striped comforter with what appeared to be blood spots on both sides and a pair of black knit slacks that were identified as Tanya's. These pants were later found to have semen stains on them. The van also contained a $758 money order made out to Gensco. The van was processed for fingerprints where they only found prints for Jay and Tanya. Jay was now the primary suspect.
1: On November 26th, Thanksgiving Day 1987, one day after the van was discovered, Jay's family received the news that a body was found by two hunters approximately 80 miles south of Bellingham where the van was found. It was Jay. He was found underneath High Bridge next to a piling. It was a small rural bridge that spanned the Snoqualmie River in Snohomish County. It was also near the Monroe Honor Farm, which is a prison. Well, I mean, specifically, it was a... Detention? No, no, you're right. I mean, it was, I
2: mean, these people were incarcerated, but they were allowed to work the farm. They were trusted to work this farm.
1: Without any gates around them or fences around them. That is my understanding. Okay. Originally, law enforcement thought he may have been thrown off the bridge, but later eliminated that possibility. According to court records, Jay's body was found lying on its right side, with the upper torso covered by a powder blue blanket. Law enforcement officers and the medical examiner found a ligature wrapped around Jay's neck, obvious trauma to his head, and what appeared to be a pack of cigarettes stuffed in his mouth. Rocks located nearby had blood and hair on them. Also located near the body were eight zip ties attached to one another in a fashion similar to the zip ties located where they found Tanya and in the Ford van. An autopsy was conducted the next day at the Snohomish County Medical Examiner's Office. Ligature abrasions and petechial eye hemorrhages ultimately told the medical examiner that Jay died from asphyxia due to strangulation. A tissue had actually been stuffed down his throat, and then a pack of cigarettes had been forced into his mouth. Mm -hmm. He also suffered blunt force trauma to the head. It appeared to investigators that Jay fought hard for his life. I can't even imagine what this kid went through. And I have to assume, even though they found Tanya first, he wasn't just fighting for his life, he was fighting for hers. That's my presumption with every single thing I know right now. Right. We had a tough time finding Jay's official date of death in the court records. Right. It wasn't in the probable cause declaration like Tanya's was. Right. But what we did find was his grave. Mm -hmm. And it lists his date of death as November 18th, 1987, which was the day that they had left Saanich. Exactly. So if Jay were killed first,
2: as his grave seems to indicate, and that's in Snohomish County. So that's east of Seattle. Then the killer went north, 75 miles north of Seattle, and murdered Tanya and then dropped the van 16 miles from that. Oh, and by the way, all of these places, Kathy, are in different counties. Right.
1: With different detectives. Right. In different jurisdictions. Exactly. And as you'll recall, the medical examiner who did the autopsy on Tanya had her date of death being the next day, November 19th.
2: They were very specific about her date of death. So
1: reading this case
2: made me remember my memories of Snohomish. Um, When I was in sixth grade, it was the second plane flight I had ever taken. I flew during Easter break with my friend Jennifer to her grandparents' house, and I could not believe how beautiful Snohomish was. My friend had (laughs) these Yugoslavian grandparents. We come in the house, and the grandpa's like, time for dinner. But he said in a super thick accent, we're having deep fried smelts. I had no idea what a smelt was, and I didn't like fish back then but my mother's voice. It's a very
1: small fish. Yes. It's actually endangered in Northern California.
2: Okay. Yeah. So it's a small fish and they deep fried them, but they didn't bread them. So I'm looking at these fish and I could see the eye sockets. Oh no. Yeah. But I don't like fish, but my mother's voice totally went through my head. Like be polite. Yeah. yeah like, Kathy, you will eat what is on your plate and you will not make a face. So in my head, I was like, I've got to just gag it down. Yeah. I got a cowboy up and I got to <laughs> eat these.
1: <Cowboy> <laughs>
2: I got to eat these. I have never had something so delicious in my life. I could not believe how good they were. So I come home and I tell my mom, like, oh, my gosh, mom, we had deep fried smelts. Do you think you could make them? And she was like, what's a smelt? Shut up and eat your meatloaf.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and on the delicious fish stories about a Snohomish is I had an aunt and uncle who used to live there. My uncle worked for the U.S. Forestry Service, and we would go up there to visit them from time to time. That was the very first time my sister and I had Indian fish. We were probably like six, seven, eight years old, like Uh right around there. We didn't know what it was. Well, what it is is you take a trout and you (laughs) cut it in half and you lay down three strips of bacon and you put the top half back on and there's your Indian fish. And so like, anything with bacon is delicious. It was delicious. And so we get home we're like, can we have Indian fish? Can we have Indian fish? No, go eat your meatloaf. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Police did their best to backtrack the couple's movements. According to court records, law enforcement was able to trace the travels of Jay and Tanya after they took the initial ferry from Victoria, British Columbia to Port Angeles, Washington. They made two stops along the way to Bremerton, and Bremerton is the place where they purchased ferry tickets that would take them across Puget Sound to Seattle. The ferry was scheduled to arrive at 11.35 p.m. in Seattle. The ferry dock in downtown Seattle was not far from Jensco, the company where Jay and Tanya were going to pick up the furnace parts. That is also where they were going to sleep in the van, right near Jensco. But after the purchase of the ferry tickets to Seattle, the police were never able to reliably place the young couple alive again.
1: Which means that they don't even know that they got on the ferry to Seattle, correct? Yeah, they
2: don't know. They don't know, which would mean... The killer would have had to take the highway down south and then head east all the way around the
1: sound. Right. You can still get there without taking the ferry. It just takes you a lot longer. Correct. The families of
2: both victims confirmed that items were missing from the van. A backpack, a jacket, a 35 millimeter Minolta camera with a 50 millimeter lens as well as traveler's checks.
1: And if you don't know what those are? Yeah, ask your parents.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know they still have them, but I'm not sure who would use them. I know, people just use plastic. Right, exactly. Yeah. Traveler's checks were a big thing. Yes. And if you, you, if you lost your traveler's checks while you were on a trip, it was a bummer. The family had serial numbers for the camera and the lens and the lens was subsequently pawned in Portland, Oregon. However, detectives were never able to trace how it got there.
1: The Van Kylenborg family held a funeral at the University of Victoria's Interfaith Chapel, filled with family as well as friends and teachers from Oak Bay High School. Beyond the overwhelming grief, the family was trying to comprehend why someone would want to kill such nice people, and there was not a dry eye the entire service. Jay Cook's family held a memorial one week later at the same chapel and many of the same individuals attended. Jay's family and circle of friends were devastated by his death. He was not a violent or aggressive type and they could not imagine someone wanting to hurt him. Both families were desperate for answers. According to an article in the Vancouver Sun by journalist Sarah Cox, Jay Cook's father and his co-workers at Imperial Oil offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. They were joined by a local business in Victoria, British Columbia that added $5,000 to the reward offer. At this point, there were four jurisdictions searching for answers. Exactly. There was Saanich, and then there was the county where Jay was found, the
2: county where Tanya was found, and the county where the van was found. Exactly.
1: According to the previously mentioned episode of Bloodline Detectives, the Cook and Van Kuylenborg families began receiving taunting letters one month after the murders at Christmas time. The letters claimed responsibility for the murders and contained taunting descriptions of the suffering of the young couple. Six cards over three different holidays were sent, including Mother's Day, with postmarks from New York, Los Angeles, and Seattle. The letters to each family contained the same handwriting and distinctive phrases, taunting descriptions of the murders. And the author claimed to be the killer. So, Kath, I did a deep dive on this, and I can only find partial letters.
2: But this one is sent December 3rd, 1980. I believe it's 88. Dear Mr. Cook, as someone who instinctively hates all Canadians, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to kill Jay and Tanya. Furthermore, I'll do it again if another opportunity presents itself. And you ain't never going to catch me. And thanks for the money. I laughed as I wolfed down the steaks, etc. I've eaten and enjoyed since the fateful evening and morning of November 18th and 19th. Sorry, it was one of yours, but I've waited to avenge myself. And and then I can't read the rest of it. So I I, assume the money he's talking about is from the traveler's checks? That's what I assume as well. Then there's this other one that says, again, it's only partial. Dearest Jay's father, or Gordon Cook... Greetings and salutations. Hallelujah, bloody Jesus. I am the happiest human being on the planet Earth. In fact, I am on a Michael Jackson victory tour celebrating my victory.
1: I assume he's referring to the victory tour album that Michael Jackson was on?
2: Um, you're such a dork that you even know that. <laughs> hey so <laughs> his pre
1: pedophile years, he was good. <laughs>
2: But anyway, so I I am assuming actually he was doing a play on the album title as well. But um, but I don't know. And the way it's written, these letters are it's extremely distinctive printing. And, And every so often he'll capitalize a word
1: or like Hallelujah, Jesus or whatever it is. Hallelujah, bloody Jesus. The cards and letters were brought in and processed for prints. No identifying information was recovered. And the case went cold.
2: Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food.
1: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And
2: Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
1: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit.
2: <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com killerd Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's b a d l a n d s f o o d dot com slash killer d.
0: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
2: Over the following years, various detectives resurrected public interest in the case in an attempt to get any leads from the public. Detective Jim Scharf of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office helped start their cold case unit, and he became intimately familiar with the case in 2005.
1: Okay, so... In German, Scharf means spicy, so oh, can really? I call him Detective Spicy?
2: Yeah, you can if you want to.
1: <laughs> I want that title. Hi, I'm Detective Spicy. <laughs> okay, third time I've told you not to do that. Oh, I know. you hate when I do that. I
2: really do. <laughs> detective Scharf and Detective Gerald Bowers, a Skagit County detective who was on scene with Tanya's body never stop trying to find the killer. DNA analysis capabilities made leaps and bounds in the following years. In 1994, experts were able to extract DNA from semen found on Tanya's body, as well as from semen found on her black pants that were left in the van. None of the DNA matched Jay Cook. In 2003, DNA samples were submitted to CODIS, which is FBI's, you guys know this, it's the, what is it? The
1: Combined combined Ah, DNA Index System. Thanks, Smarty Pants. You're welcome. You want to hear about the theory of relativity?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So they submitted the DNA through CODIS in 2003 and came up with nothing. And then in 2007, they submitted it to Interpol which is the International Criminal Police Organization. And there's a bunch of countries that belong to it. I think,
1: 194.
2: There you go. There I you go. I am smart. You are. Oh, Google, I love you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, you didn't see me look it up.
2: I know. That's true. I did not. Anyway, so no matches were found from either of those databases. With no leads except the letters, police invited America's Most Wanted to do an episode on the murders, hoping someone would identify the author. In 2010, after the episode aired, detectives caught their first break. They were able to find the man who wrote the letters. He was described as a 78-year-old Canadian transient living in Seattle at the time of the murders with serious mental health issues. He admitted to writing the letters but not committing the murders, and he voluntarily gave a DNA sample that eliminated him as a suspect. Now, the detective's best lead was gone. In the subsequent years, detectives continued their efforts. In 2015, British Columbia Crime Stoppers published an article written by John S. Peary entitled, What Happened to Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kuylenborg. The article recapped the murders and urged anyone with information to call the police or report the information anonymously on the British Columbia Crime Stoppers website. As tips came in, every single name was investigated, but no real suspects emerged.
1: Then, in 2017, police learned of phenotyping. Phenotyping uses a person's DNA to create a profile of an individual, their race, complexion, hair, eye color, even the shape of their face, to make up composite sketches. Detective Scharf, otherwise known as Detective Spicy, (laughs) told the Cooks and Kylan Borgs that he was not giving up, and he apprised them that he was going to try to get a profile of the killer. He wanted to generate interest and attention in the case again. Detective Scharf asked Parabon Nanolabs, the company known for a phenotyping service called Snapshot, to build a profile of the killer from DNA taken from the crime scenes.
2: Now, Kath, the phenotyping is not without controversy. You know, they've identified certain genes that can predict pretty accurately hair color and eye color, but they don't necessarily predict the width of somebody's face. They're actually pretty decent at skin tones. But but what about even like the shape of their nose? Right. It's not without controversy. It's insanely cool and it's new, and it's, but it's not without controversy.
1: Less than a month later, the detectives were given a profile. The DNA was identified as belonging to someone of Northern European descent, blonde or reddish hair, green or hazel eyes, and a very light complexion. In a piece written by Taylor McAvoy and Eric Wilkinson of King 5 News, on April 11, 2018, police held a press conference, recapped the murders, and had family members of each victim speak. They then released the sketches of the killer at the press conference. Composite sketches had been created of the suspect at ages 25, 45, and 65. So I actually had a chance to look on the Snohomish County Sheriff's Department website and they had a picture on there of the phenotype report Mm -hmm. that showed the snapshot. And what was interesting is it actually gave percentages of how close they thought they were to whatever it was that they predicted. What do you mean? So, for instance, it has skin color and it has 90.4 percent confidence that he was fair or very fair, but said he was not light brown, brown or dark brown. Okay. For eye color, it was even higher. It was 93.3% confidence that he had green or hazel eyes. And for hair color, being blonde or red was an 80.4% confidence. It even went so far as to talk about freckles. Isn't this crazy? It is
2: amazing to me that scientists have identified genetic material across the board that can determine Oh, like this is the genetic material for hair color. So this is we're going to look for hair color. This is the genetic material for eye color. And this is where we're going
1: to look. It blows my mind. Absolutely. Blows my mind. When the sketches were released, the families of the victims offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer. The reward money was going to be available for that year only, which was about seven and a half months. Which I love because obviously they're saying, hurry up. Find these people. Right. If you want this cash, yep. you don't get to wait around and decide if nope. you're going to narc on someone. Exactly. Police received another 120 tips, whereby the composite looked like someone, but no tips about any person who was specifically seen in the area when the murder happened. The list of names detectives investigated over the course of the investigation exceeded 200 individuals.
2: hmm Parabon's founder and CEO, Stephen Armantrout, was dealing directly with Detective Scharf and suggested a different route. He told Detective Scharf that they could try to match the killer's DNA with genealogy databases. Essentially, DNA extracted from an unidentified person is synthesized in a special lab And frankly, I don't know what that means, but I believe this statement is correct.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We have no knowledge to contradict that. I read it. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Exactly. I think it was called DNA Solutions, but honestly, I I don't know. They prepared the DNA for uploading to a website called GEDmatch. They called it JedMatch, And this is an online service, and it's now one of a handful, which compares DNA data files from different testing companies Once that DNA is uploaded, GEDmatch compares it with all of the other people that have uploaded their DNA to the various websites, and it creates a match list. Parabon asked genealogist CeCe Moore to assist in this investigation. Now, CeCe Moore is kind of a famous forensic genetic genealogist at this point. Wow, that's quite a title. I know, exactly. But she refers to herself as a citizen scientist she began her genealogy as a hobby and became completely like she went down the rabbit hole with immersed it. herself completely in completely immersed later Parabon hired her to be the head of their genetic genealogy department wow yeah but they only had like three employees total but still Oh still still yeah, yeah. she basically explained that when Jed Match creates this list they start from the top down So people who share what they call centimorgans, and centimorgans are simply a unit used to measure genetic linkage, okay? So she was saying, whoever has the most centimorgans in common with you is at the top of the list. And she gave an example of, if you share 2,600 centimorgans with a certain person, that person is probably your sibling. If you share 850 centimorgans, it may be a first cousin or a grandparent, so on and so forth. And she goes down and says 100 centimorgans of shared DNA would be much more difficult to determine because basically what they do is they take this information and they go through family trees like crazy. And so according to an episode by the Fifth Estate entitled Is Murder in Your DNA, CeCe Moore said two matches popped up as sharing DNA with Jay and Tanya's killer. One was a second cousin named Chelsea Rustad. According to Cece, getting a second cousin match on a case is a bit like getting struck by lightning. Like when she was being interviewed, just the
1: excitement
2: in her voice at what she had found was
1: palpable. Because she's getting so much closer than she thought she would from the beginning. I believe that's it. Like she's not going to, you know... Start with an eighth cousin and then have all these millions
2: of people to go through. And have a bunch of roadblocks and whatnot. Right. And anyway, so they, they mention the second cousin being Chelsea Rustad, but they don't say who the other individual was. Maybe okay. they didn't consent. I have a feeling they were like, no, do not reveal my name.
1: You know, if I had the police knock on my door with that, I'd know exactly the cousin they were talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: in 2018, Detective Scharf knocks on Chelsea Rustad's door and informs her that he was looking for a murder suspect that may be related to her. He informed her that she shared 3.35% of her DNA with the unknown suspect. So it turns out five years earlier, Chelsea started realizing how little she knew about her origins and her family, and she didn't know cousins and things like this. So she decides that she's going to start doing genealogy research. And uh, in 2015, she submitted a photo to Ancestry.com, and there was a competition where you submit a photo and they could say, hey... You know, you won this competition based on your photo. Here's your free DNA kit.
1: Do you think everybody who responded
2: got a free DNA kit? I think so. I think so. (laughs) Don't tell Chelsea, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened.
1: She was special.
2: She got it for real. So she... Anyway, so she's all excited. She uploads her DNA and continues researching her family tree, and she's expecting to find cousins or maybe somebody she didn't know that was local, et cetera, et cetera. So when Detective Scharf knocked on her door in 2018, needless to say, she was shocked, but she cooperated with them and... She said, by the way, I've been doing my family tree and I will supply you with all of my research. Oh, wow. That must have been so helpful to them. Yeah. So she was very gracious about it. Genealogist Cece Moore continued branching out the family tree until she could figure out what marriage connected the two lines of DNA that she had found. And she eventually figures it out. She finds the couple that connected these two lines of DNA, and they have four children, three girls and one boy. His name was William Earl Talbot II.
1: Detective Scharf had a healthy skepticism about the process, but he also had hope for the first time in a very long time. But genealogy is not evidence. It's only a lead. Mm -hmm. So detectives began investigating Talbot. During their investigation over the prior 30 years, they had never come across his name before. They also found out that while in high school, a friend gave him a driving job two blocks south of the Jensco Heating Company, where Jay and Tanya were supposed to have stayed that night in their van. So Talbot knew the area. Talbot also did not live far from the location where Jay's body was found. His only criminal record, though, was an assault conviction with a $150 fine and deferred prosecution.
2: No wonder he's flying under the radar. No
1: kidding. Yeah. Detectives continued to do a background investigation on Talbot, but knew they needed a sample of Talbot's DNA for comparison. Shortly after his name came up as a possible suspect, he was placed under surveillance. For years, he worked as a truck driver for a Seattle-based company, and undercover detectives followed his moves during work and non-work hours. May 8, 2018, was their lucky day. While Talbot was stopped at a red light in Seattle, he opened his driver's side door and walked out on the runner to adjust something on his truck. As he did so, a coffee cup fell out. Talbot got back in the truck and drove away when the light turned green. Detectives immediately picked up the cup, and delivered it to the Washington State Patrol crime lab. The following day, May 9th, the crime lab determined that the DNA profile they were able to extract from the coffee cup matched the DNA profile that had been extracted from Tanya's semen-stained slacks. On May 17th, a search warrant for a confirmatory DNA sample was signed by a judicial officer and served on Talbot.
2: Yeah, so basically, because they now have a match to this coffee cup, they have probable cause to actually issue a warrant that says, hey, give me your DNA.
1: Just to make sure the coffee cup hadn't been somebody else's that had dropped out of the cab, I'm assuming. Correct. Okay. Yeah, so they report that the
2: confirmatory DNA sample is the same.
1: According to the crime lab, the chances of a random match were calculated at 1 in 180 quadrillion. When Detective Scharf read the report, which said the person who drank from the cup Was the same person who raped tanya he teared up then screamed with joy and relief i know isn't that awesome yes it's been 30 years
2: right and this guy has been doggedly pursuing this case specifically for 13 years yeah that's crazy yeah so Kath, when the detectives did background on talbot they realized that he had these violent propensities in his childhood Like he attacked his sister, he attacked his dad. I want to say he like put his sister in the hospital. And so like super antisocial behavior. And I want to say that he had not been in touch with his family for 20 years. But they realized like they were dealing with somebody who might be armed. And in order to minimize the risk of getting shot, they decided that they were going to arrest him right after work. They go into the truck parking lot. You know, they go in through the gate. And they see him and they're like, hey, we'd like to talk to you about a couple things. And he like, said, no, thank you. Yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> Come back tomorrow or the next day. It's not good right now. It was Detective Scharf who was doing this. And he, was, he said he was expecting a fight. So he says to Talbot, no, 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 I'd rather talk about it now. And I want to see some ID. And he was like, no, thanks. I want to see some ID. And then he basically said, turn around, you're under arrest. Totally expecting to get sucker punched or something, but... Talbot
1: complied. Wow. Yeah. So I would they, have expected a sucker punch. Too. Yeah.
2: So they put him in the back of the surveillance van. And this is what's cool. They turned the radio up. They put the music through or the radio uh, sound through the speakers in the back so that he could not hear them. And then they called the brother of Tanya and said in our back seat, we have your sister's killer. And then they called the brother of Jay and told them the same thing. But I thought that was so cool. Like these detectives, because they had kept in touch with both families for 30 years. And so what a gift to the families. Totally. And so just like knowing that somebody is out there working so hard on your behalf and the fact that he was in the back seat at the time. I love that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So William Talbot's trial began in mid-June of 2019. And it's essentially what you would expect. We're not going to get into too many details of the trial. CeCe Moore testified, the genealogist. Detective Scharf took the stand and did a blow by blow of his investigation and his arrest. A DNA expert took the stand and explained everything. They talked about phenotyping, they talked about genetic genealogy. And the jury deliberated for, I believe, two and a half to three days. It was
1: just over two days.
2: Okay. And so they came to a verdict on June 28th, 2019, and found William Talbot guilty of two counts of aggravated first-degree murder. And the aggravating circumstances included allegations that more than one person was murdered and that the murders were part of a common scheme or plan. And that the murders were committed in the course of, or in the immediate flight from, a robbery, a rape, or kidnapping.
1: He certainly checks all those boxes. Exactly.
2: So on July 24th, 2019, the judge sentenced Talbot to two consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. With all the relief attended to a guilty verdict and the remand of Talbot to the Washington State Penitentiary, this case did not end there. Within three weeks of the verdict, Talbot's attorneys filed an appeal on a number of grounds, but not on grounds objecting to the evidence admitted with respect to genetic genealogy, because the defense attorneys had not objected to it at trial. So therefore, that argument was waived on appeal. On December 6, 2021, the Court of Appeal for the state of Washington reversed Talbot's guilty verdict. That
1: must have crushed the families uh, and friends and loved ones I and everyone interested in oh, it. Oh,
2: I can't imagine. That was overturned three months ago. Right. You know, Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. The Court of Appeal only addressed one of the appellant's contentions and basically said, hey, Talbot's right to an impartial jury was violated Because juror number 40 expressed actual bias, but was still allowed to serve. Each attorney gets what we call challenges. And a challenge for cause means, hey, judge, this is so obvious that this person shouldn't be serving as a juror. You need to get rid of this person. And a peremptory challenge is one that you exercise, like I would like to thank and excuse juror number 25, Simply because you don't like their vibe, their tattoos, their hair color, whatever it is, you want to get rid of this person because you think that they're going to go against your client. Attorneys like challenges for cause because you only get a limited number of peremptory challenges. So the goal is to try to find unbiased jurors. Like everyone comes with biases, but you want to make sure that you can set them aside. So what happens is the prosecution and the defense are questioning juror number 40 on her answers to this questionnaire. And I'm gonna read from the transcript. And it's her answer. I grew up in a single-parent household and my mother was the victim of a lot of domestic abuse. So while I am able to reasonably set aside my own, I guess, experiences in life, I just wanted to put that out there because I don't know how I would feel being shown evidence of something that could bring up memories that I have worked hard to get rid of. So the defense attorney says, So do you think that would affect you to the point where you think you could not be fair and impartial in assessing the evidence in this case as to both the state and Mr. Talbot? Answer. To be honest, I feel like I wouldn't know until the time came. But I also have a daughter, and I think that might play a part of how I might feel. If there was some action taken towards a young woman, I might take that personally and not be able to be impartial. So the court of appeal opinion goes through like two pages of the voir dire transcript. And ultimately, she never gave an unequivocal response that said, I could put my bias aside. Right. I could be impartial. So the defense attorney says to the judge, hey, I'd like to, you know, ding her for cause. And the judge says, no, he denies it. So she sits on the juror. He does not exercise his peremptory challenge. And again, peremptories are just because I want to. So on appeal, the state said, hey, he can't complain about this. He didn't exercise his peremptory challenge. And the court of appeals like it doesn't matter. This trial court made a bad decision because this woman admitted that she had bias And she wasn't, quote unquote, rehabilitated, meaning she never admitted unequivocally that she could set her bias aside. So the trial court made an error in allowing her to stay on as a juror. It doesn't matter that the defense attorney had a peremptory challenge left or not. So what the Court of Appeals said is juror bias is always a problem. It is always unfair. So you know how, like, we've talked about cases in the past where the Court of Appeal says, yeah, the trial court judge made a mistake, but it's harmless error. And so in this case, the Court of Appeal said a biased juror is never harmless error. And the Court of Appeal reversed the conviction. So Talbot still remains in the Washington State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Walla Walla, because the prosecutor said, oh, no, 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 no. We're appealing the Court of Appeal's ruling, and we're going to wait for the Washington Supreme Court To make a determination, and if the Washington Supreme Court makes a determination and bounces this conviction, we're going to retry him. Good.
1: Yeah. So he's in jail. As we've discussed in prior episodes, at sentencing hearings, the court does allow impact statements from family and friends of the victims. Prior to Talbot's sentencing hearing, the prosecuting attorney submitted victim impact statements from two people, Tanya's best friend, May Robson, and her brother, John. What we didn't find in the court records, however, was whether or not anybody from Jay Cook's or Tanya Van Kylenborg's family were there speaking in person, giving their impact statements. So we wanted to read a portion of the two victim impact statements that had been submitted from Tanya's best friend and her brother. Tanya's best friend, Mae Robson, said, Our small, safe, tight-knit community was traumatized by Talbot's evil actions. A memorial bench was placed at Willows Beach where we used to hang out. Myself and our circle of friends were deeply tormented by Talbot's actions and remain so to this day. Everything we knew about the world changed. Faith was lost, confidence lost, sorrow and despair set in, and for some of our friends, it was all too much to bear. Some turned to drugs, and two friends died of an overdose within five years of Tanya's and Jay's deaths. These friends were good kids from good homes who simply couldn't cope with the pain and sorrow. In Tanya's brother John's statement, he wrote, "'My parents were never the same after Tanya's murder. After a few years, they were able to put on a facade most days that they were continuing on, but it did not take much to scratch through their thin veneer to expose their raw pain, shock at the cruelty of the world, and their lack of will to carry on. The thoughts of Tanya's final hours alive continue to haunt me, and continue to leave me with a sense of frustration and failure of not being able to help her in her hour of greatest need. The loss of my sister Tanya has left a wound in my heart, and in light of the circumstances of her death, I don't think this wound can be repaired. We hope to
2: see more and more cold cases solved with advances in DNA. Cloud Steger, Chief criminal investigator for Washington State Attorney General's office stated the following in the previously referenced episode of Unsolved Mysteries There's no case too cold to be solved. There's not. These guys, they're sitting at home and they're watching the news and they hear about another cold case from 25, 30 years ago getting solved. That makes them nervous. And that's my message to anyone who's ever killed somebody be afraid. Be very afraid. Wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, because we're coming to get you.
1: We want to thank everybody for listening today, and we want to make sure to give a big shout out to Megan, Definitely. who is one of our followers, and she is the one who suggested that we do this case today. Yes. Yes. So thank you, Megan. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you very, very much. It was fascinating to research. I loved it. I loved it.
1: And the rest of you can help us.
2: By telling a friend about us.
1: If you're not following us yet on Instagram or Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast, please do. do.